0: Good morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the reminder last week of how you have saved us in your Son, that how, in Christ, we have been raised from dead to life, that though we are spiritually raised now, one day, physically, we'll be raised when he comes again. Help us, O Lord, to renew our mind and our hearts to hear from you rightly and to receive your truth readily. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, Church, and for those joining online, my name is Tim. I'm a pastoral worker here at uh, St. Mary's, and we're continuing our series in the Ten Commandments that we actually began uh, before Easter. So we stopped at the Fifth Commandment, so now we're here to continue with the Sixth Commandment, which simply says, you shall not murder. Now, murder is one of the most heinous crimes that is universally condemned throughout the globe, in all human societies, Because if murder were allowed to take place without any consequence, society as we know it would collapse. It can't function. Because we won't feel safe. We won't trust another human being. Society can't function if murder was allowed to go freely. So for the Sixth Commandment to just say, you shall not murder, it's even shorter in the Hebrew, it's just two words. It just basically says, don't murder. Now, we all agree. So keeping it should be pretty straightforward, isn't it? That's all. Don't murder. Thank you. Let's close in prayer. Just kidding. Of course not. The Bible has a lot to say about this. Um, Now, there may be some changes to the outline as you know it, but as we follow, hopefully we'll be exploring it in three main parts. We're first going through the definition of the Sixth Commandment, defining murder, the dilemma of the Sixth Commandment, and last but not least, the demonstration, how can we truly be observing this Sixth Commandment and how it applies to us in our everyday lives, okay? And my main uh, hope for us is to learn that we are all to safeguard God's image bearers in the gospel. We are all to safeguard God's image bearers in the gospel. So let's go into the definition of the Sixth Commandment. Well, in our modern day courts, as well as in the Bible, there's a need to distinguish between uh, a human ending the life of another human as killing from murder. Why? Well, even recently in our Malaysian courts, there was a case that was dismissed of uh, a clerk, Sam cutting uh, whose car in the wee hours of the morning, uh, well, killed eight children who were not supposed to be there in the morning anyway, right? And rightly so, uh, she was acquitted, she was innocent. That did not rule as murder, and rightly so. So we must distinguish between uh, killing and murder. What is it? And not just from the law courts, but also from the Bible. So let's go first. Uh, I'll I'll, I'll give three examples. There are many more, but I'll just give three main examples of of killings that are not murder. The first are executions. So first and foremost, where do we go? In the Bible, we go straight to God. You see, God as Creator, who made everything, who gave all life, has the right to demand of, of us the life that He has given us because our lives belong to Him in the first place. This is a unique uh, right given to God alone. And this is especially true in the case of those who sin against Him. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, we read, uh, God says, Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son. The soul of he who sins shall die. And indeed, in particular, when it comes to murder, uh, the, the punishment, Leviticus 24, verse 21, Whoever kills a person shall be put to death. So capital punishment, it's not murder. Okay? Because God has a right to lay down a law that meets out this punishment. Now, this is in the Old Testament. But we see kind of this carried over into the New in in Paul, when he wrote in Romans 13 that the, the secular government, so remember, Paul was writing of the ancient Roman Empire, not a Christian nation. Right? And he says that the emperor is God's servant. If you do wrong, if you do wrong in society, you should fear the government because the, 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 the government carries the sword not in vain, which means that there is capital punishment. Okay? So the first is uh, capital punishment is not murder. The second example is self-defense. So in Exodus 22, one example, verse 2, if a thief is found broken in, breaking in your house, and is struck dead so he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for that. So you have the right to defend your own home, a thief comes in, you killed, and the thief got killed, no murder, right? And the third example is, of course, accidental one. This is an interesting one. In Deuteronomy verse 19, verse 4 to 5. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally, without hating him in the past. So you see, the world is broken. This is a fallen world in which human death can happen, even when not sought. Accidentally, human death can happen. And this is a very interesting example in verse 5. You see, as when someone goes in the forest with his neighbour together to cut wood and they swing the axe and the head of the axe falls off and strikes his neighbour and kills him. And he dies. Number one, no blood guilt. But, here it says, uh, he may flee to one of these cities. So there was a provision. You see, the neighbour that was killed very likely has relatives seeking revenge that would not, in the heat of the moment, listen to the courts and will seek to kill immediately, retribution immediately. And there's these cities that innocent people can run to and be saved and wait for a fair trial to judge and be innocent and be released. This was a provision in the Old Testament. So we see murder uh, does not include non-intentional killings, accidents and, and whatsoever, right? So murder is unlawful killings. It's, it, it's, it has to do with intention, so the first example here I'll give is premeditated murder. And this is the general definition in most places as well, in most countries as well, including Malaysia. Uh, again, we, we follow on from Deuteronomy 19 with that city of refuge, that safe place, right? And we continue on in verse 11. But if anyone hates his neighbour and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees to one of these cities... The elders of this city of refuge shall take him from there, hand him over to the avenger so that he may die. Running to the city of refuge does not discount justice because intentional murder, premeditated murder, uh, killing is murder. There is guilt. that The fellow lie in wait for an opportunity planned for it, sought that the opportunity came, ambushed someone and killed them murder, right? However, the Bible goes further than our legal courts in also ascribing negligence as murder too. One example is in Exodus 21, <clears throat> verse 29. So the context of this is in Exodus 20, uh, 20, 21, verse 28, uh, Moses just excused, like, if, you have an, if a person has a, an ox and that ox, God means with his horns, killed someone, the owner is innocent, but the ox shall be put to death. Fine, but he continues on. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and his owner has been warned and had not kept it in and this ox kills a man or a woman, the ox is stoned and the owner is put to death as well. You see, if with reasonable cause you could have prevented this but you went ahead anyway, you're just as culpable in the Bible side. Now, of course, none of us own bulls or oxes today, isn't it? But we do drive cars, which maybe weigh as much as an ox, isn't it? So, if I were to draw a parallel, it would be negligence in the in the form of driving while drunk. It's negligent. You're irresponsible. You're carrying a vehicle that could cause death in a diminished capacity, and if you kill someone, according to the Bible, not according to Malaysia's law courts, but according to the Bible, that's murder. Now why is murder wrong? Society at large will just tell you will point you to the golden rule do to others as you won't want others to do to you. Fair enough, right? You don't want to be killed you, you love your life so don't kill. But the Bible goes deeper. Why murder is wrong is not just about self-preservation but when we see in Genesis 9 that we just read My lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. That human life is precious, that the ending of it is such a severe offence, deserving death, because every human bears the image of God. So to intentionally seek to harm someone bearing God's image is akin to harming God Himself. For example, any act of violence done on an embassy in foreign soil is an act of war on the country the embassy represents, correct? In the same way, harming those who bear God's image is doing violence to God, whose image they bear. And the way, so remember, we are all to safeguard God's image bearers in the gospel. And the way John Calvin, the, the reformer John Calvin, interprets this command, writing in the Institutes, to paraphrase it, he describes a whole human race is united in that we all bear God's image together. That the safety of God's image of each of us has been entrusted to all to safeguard. So murder then is not just about actively inflicting harm on a fellow image bearer, but a failure to protect God's image by neglect. And that leads to the dilemma of this commandment as we will explore. So the basis of this dilemma is that the image of God is inherent in each of us. That human life is precious. The sanctity of human life. In Genesis 1.27, we are told, God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Every human being, male and female. That, that covers the whole human race, actually. Okay. I don't care what the others may say, but it's, you're either male or you're female. And that's the whole human race. That every human being is made in God's image. Hence, we bear uh, uh, inherent dignity. Inherent means it's in our nature. We are born with it. No, need, uh, no other requirements required. And this is that every human has a basic right or dignity. It's the foundation of modern law. Human rights. But we see that human life is sacred Because it is precious to God. That it is precious, not because of what it can do or its potential, no. Not because of what it can contribute or the good that it can do, no. The unborn child, the differently abled, the neurodivergent, the elderly, the the, the mentally ill. All of these that society will write off are humans. Hence, they are entitled to the full rights of human dignity. And as a society, how we treat each other, we treat each other with love, with compassion, with kindness, with mercy. This, how we treat each other, shows forth the image of God. How God is like in how we treat one another, especially the ones I mentioned just now, those who can't uh, work for themselves. But is that what we see out there today, brothers and sisters? No. Yes, we bear the image of God. But we have not imaged God, rightly. We have defaced, we have marred the image of God in us. When we look at humanity, the total sum of human action out there, we see greed, we see selfishness, survival of myself, self-preservation, exploiting others for my own benefit. We see sexual immorality, treating humans as commodities. We have utterly failed, all of us, myself included to image God. And this is not a modern day problem with the internet and everything. The internet just made it more clear. This is an ancient problem going back to the first human beings, to us today. And I'd like to highlight three main ways in which we have done violence to the image of God. Now the first is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, that Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, He takes this commandment, the Sixth Commandment, and he reveals the heart behind it. He says, You have heard it said of old, you shall not murder. If you Whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to, to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Is Jesus being harsh here? Because, I mean, Who who among us hasn't shouted at someone? Raised your voice. Called people names. Thought of someone as less than human. Or maybe even disliked someone so much that you wished them harm. Or it could be the the, the reckless driver that cut in in front of you, that overtook you, right? And and you you wished, you prayed. Maybe when I turn that bend, I'll see his car crash along the side. Ha ha, serve you right. Wish one among us hasn't thought that. Or when we, when we deal online, um, which one of us hasn't insulted someone online? Or maybe even on a side text group talking bad about, about someone else to talk about them in less than kind ways. All of us have done it. But surely, hatred is bad, but come on, it can't be as bad as murder, right? Well, you see, murder is about irreversibly harming the image of God in a person. But when we, when we're driving, in that moment when the car cuts in front of us and we curse that car, referring to that Honda, that Toyota, that BMW, we're not angry at the car. We are actually scolding the driver, the person, isn't it? But it's so easy to remove the humanity from the person that we're angry at and to distinct of the car. Or when we argue with someone online, It could be someone who thinks differently from us, a different race, a different religion, different political ideology. It's so tempting to reduce this person to their arguments and forget that we're talking to a fellow human being. We're not talking to a computer, right? And in doing so, we have ignored their humanity. We have brought down their human value. And that's the reason why online arguments can get so toxic. Right? Why, why why these confrontations on the road or online can get so toxic? Because it's so easy to dehumanize the other person. So when we hate someone, when we are angry at someone, it's natural to see them as less inhuman, but we don't realize that this puts us on the same path as a murderer doing violence to the image of God. That we are all liable to the hell of fire. Now there's two more examples i like to bring up. In how society seeks to bring down the image of God. And the first I'd like to bring up is a bit sensitive. But I think it's necessary. And it's suicide. Now, I'd like to differentiate suicide from self-sacrifice. From self-sacrifice like a soldier throwing himself, on, his, himself onto a live grenade to save the lives of his squad mates. That self-sacrifice instead is the protecting of the image of God in others by giving off your own life. That is not murder, right? But the suicide I'm talking about is the devaluing of the image of God in one's self. And in doing so, it buys into the lie of the devil. As we see in John chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus, when he's talking against the Pharisees, he says, You are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. The devil was a murderer in the, from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. When the devil lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. The devil was a murderer from the beginning, that he hates God. He hates all who bears God's image. So he seeks to do violence to the image of God in whatever way he can. From the beginning in the garden, in in, in lying to Eve and deceiving them into eating of the fruit they should not have eaten, to today, in this case, in suicide, the devil does so by convincing the poor and depressed soul of the lie. He lies to them saying, you're not precious. He lies to them saying, no one wants you. He lies to them saying, you're not valuable. These are all lies. That suicide is never the solution because suicide is not true. It's a lie of the devil. The truth instead is that you are precious in God's sight. That you have value to God. Not No matter what you have done, whatever is in your past, no matter how life may be crumbling around you right now, no matter what others may have said or did to you, it doesn't change the fact that you are precious to God, that He loves you, because, not because you're awesome, but because you bear His image. Your life is not a useless gift that, God, that has been thrown on you, but it's God's gift for you because He loves you enough that He sent Jesus to die for you. Please know that. Now I know that in times of deep darkness, when when life is crumbling around, in the dark night of the soul, you can know these things, but it seems so far away. That's why it's not wrong, it's not shameful, please. There's no shame in asking for help. And to know that you're not alone in the struggle. I face such thoughts too, but I'm not diagnosed as depressed because there's a duration and a frequency that comes with that diagnosis. You won't know that you're not alone in this struggle. And as a church, we need to be a community that can hold on to one another when one is faltering because life is hard. So my question is this. If all we do with church is to log in online, or all we do is to come and sit down and then rush out without talking to anyone, if all we do is see each other once a week, What are the chances that we will be able to help if one of us is suicidal? What are the chances that if someone really needs help, that we can be the one to help? Church, let us do better. We can do better. But if that is you, you're struggling right now, if you need someone to help or to talk to, please call our pastoral helpline. It's there for you. 011-5760-3484 it's a direct line to one of our pastors if you need someone to talk to, to pray with. And if, if in the moment you didn't, you didn't write it down, okay? Fine. It's in your order of service, by the way. It's there. But even if then, if you, if you can't, right? There are other ministries out there that help. The befrienders are a good example, right? Their number is not on the screen 03762 uh, 72929. Or even the Miasa helpline one 800 There's help to be found. Don't struggle alone. Okay? Don't buy into the lie of the devil because your life is worth saving. And the last example here I have is that of abortion. Now, when I'm talking about abortion, I'm not talking about medical procedures that are done to save the mother's life. In the case of ectopic pregnancies, of pregnancies that develop outside the womb is dangerous to the life of the mother in that there could be a rupture, a bleed, and the mother can bleed out in five seconds and the baby won't survive. In those cases, that's a medical procedure to save the mother's life. I'm not talking about those. When I'm talking about abortion as murder, instead I'm talking about abortions that happen for whatever reason, in a, in a situation in which without any intervention, this pregnancy would have carried a baby to full term and would have welcomed a human life into this world. But instead, because of abortion, was ripped away. That is murder. Because the Bible says that the, the unborn child, in Psalm 139 verse 13, the unborn child is fully human. That The psalmist recognized that he was knit together in his mother's womb. He didn't say that, You know, I became a human once I was born. No, he was there even in the womb. And John Calvin says, if it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field, why? Because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge. It ought surely be deemed more atrocious to destroy a life of a fetus in the womb before it comes to light. Now, as with suicide, I'm viewing the pro-abortion movement in the West as something inherently demonic. Because what do they do? When they argue for abortion, they they dehumanize the life of the unborn child. They call it a clump of cells. They call it a tumor, an invader, to be cut out, to be thrown away. And they call it a fetus. Now that's a scientific term. It's Latin for offspring. That's all it means. But it doesn't mean anything less human. But we know that this is nothing new because even in the Old Testament, the Canaanites worshipped a demon called Moloch. Uh, who, who asked their followers to throw their children into the fire. It's nothing new, my friends. It's demonic and ancient. Abortion is murder because the unborn life is human and bears God's image. Now, I'm sure as well in the congregation of our size here in St. So even those listening online, there could be someone you know that is facing this pressure right now of an unwanted pregnancy and feel that there's no way out that life has ended if I carry this through. Please know that there are solutions to be had. The life growing in your womb is a human life that bears God's image. Where we can help, let us know. There's no shame in this, in saving. There's no shame in wanting to save a life. How can we be helping? There are ways out of it. There are other solutions other than murder for this situation. But we see, when we take a step back, we realize that all of us are guilty of murder. There's no shame in it because actually, to be honest, we're all guilty murderers. Now the world out there might not want us to think of our hatred or even things like abortion as murder, but in the sight of God, it is. That these these things I've just mentioned are as offensive to God as for us viewing a school shooting where innocent three to nine-year-olds get shot dead. It's atrocious to us, isn't it? Well, so it is to God. So murder, suicide, abortion, these things are serious. They are serious, severe sins. They are wicked. They are of the devil. But hear me closely. They are not beyond the forgiveness of Christ. That, That we are guilty of these things, yes, but they do not change nor diminish God's love for you. Please hear me. If God could love and change and transform a murderer like Paul, who murdered Christians, who put them to jail, men and women, because they were Christian, what more He could do with us and and, and begin something new in us? How can He do so? Let's explore this in three ways from the book of Colossians. In Christ. First, we see in Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the perfect image of God. That Christ imaged God perfectly. That when you look at Christ, you are seeing God that we image God brokenly, that we are guilty because of what we've done violating God's image. We have incurred God's wrath, and that's the current state of all humanity. But Jesus is righteous. He displayed God's love perfectly. He displayed God's righteousness perfectly in a way we couldn't do. But what did He do with that? He he imaged the extent that God loves you and wants to save you by going to the cross. And we see this in Colossians 1, 19-22. That in him the fullness of God dwelled, that Jesus, fully God, went to reconcile everything through the blood of the cross. We guilty murderers, right, were alien, alienated, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We were hostile to God. We were alien, we were foreign, we were far from God. We wanted nothing to do with God. We wanted God to have nothing to do with us. We wanted to take in charge of our own lives. But Christ brought us near. He reconciled us. He brought us back to God. How? How is it possible? The weight of our offense is so great. So he took the great offense on his body that Christ bore the punishment of the very worst murderers by dying on the cross. So that He can present us as holy, blameless, and above reproach. That we can be holy and blameless because Christ is holy and blameless. That Christ took all our guilt, our shame, and our punishment and gave us His holiness and His status. So who are we before Christ right now? In Christ, Colossians 3.10 will tell us that We have put on the new self in Christ. We've put off the old self that has died with Christ. We put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of His Creator. Last week, as we saw that Christ rose again in resurrection life, we too now bear His image and are raised in life in Him with a new self that is renewed in and restored in the image of His Creator. So how can we be demonstrating this? via the Sixth Commandment in Christ. Two main ways. First is to the vulnerable. In James 1.27, scribes, The religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The Gospel tells us that God came to save us when we couldn't save ourselves. So too, the gospel tells us that when we think about safeguarding the image of God, all the more we should do so for those who can't do so for themselves. Again, the unborn child that is at mercy of the mother, or for us Malaysians, the refugee who in our midst has no legal rights. They are at the mercy of the authorities. Or even abusers, be it emotional or physical, that are in a home where they are at the mercy of their abusers. What can we be doing to be fighting for the justice for these groups who can't defend the image of God in themselves? If there's something that we can be doing, let us not be idle. Let us not just leave it as, I'll pray for them and that's it. If there's something we can be doing to change that situation, to be helping, to be reaching out, let us do so. to defend that. Now, non-Christian groups out there will do it because it's the right thing to do. yes, but Christians, let us be doing so because we are so moved by the gospel, by a God who has saved us when we can't save ourselves to fight because that's what He desires. He, he, he loves the fatherless, the widow and the alien and let us image that love too. But not just to those who can't defend themselves, but also to each other. As we've read in 1 John 3, 11, the gospel tells us that we are all sinners saved by grace, that we are all on equal footing before God. That before God, we're all filthy murderers, deserving of, ju- of judgment. There's no superiority between us. Not between me and you. No, nothing. None. Because we're all saved by grace. We're all beloved only by, 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 by being with Christ. By being holy and beloved in Christ. And 1 John 3 would equate that we should we love one another and the opposite of love is being like Cain to murder. That love is the opposite of murder. So those of us who have died in Christ, we now live in Him. We are free to love in Him. Whoever loves does not abide in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. So then I turn the question on us. How are our words, our actions, and our attitudes with each other? Are they kind and gentle? Or are they cutting and insulting and sarcastic? How can we be reminding others of their worth in God? How can we be forgiving others who have a complaint against us? In the Matthew 5 passage, by the way, we didn't read the full thing, but Jesus essentially says, if your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar, go and be reconciled and then go and offer it before God. Note he says, if your brother has something against you, the Asian tendency is, I'll wait till they apologise and then I'll forgive them. Right? That's what we do. No, the Bible says no. You take the first move, be reconciled. Because that's how we image God. God who didn't wait for us to come to Him, but went out instead. So maybe if you bear a grudge, now how do you know? Maybe, how do you know you're bearing a grudge? Perhaps you don't like someone. There's someone in your mind. And that if they don't like them, that if ill befalls them, you you will be happy. I'm sorry, but you're bearing a grudge. That perhaps you're better off just letting that go. We are all to safeguard God's image bearers in the gospel. So lastly, last but not least, we do all this. Trying to do all this by human strength will only lead to failure. That's what the world does. They, they do it because it's right. They do it because you know, they, they try. For the Christian, how we love one another, why we do these things, needs to be motivated by the gospel. It's only in the gospel that demonstrates the proper obedience of the Sixth Commandment. So, if we truly love someone, the most loving thing we can be, do, be doing is saving their life, isn't it? By sharing the gospel. By loving them so much to seek to restore God's image in them, in Christ. Where murder is the devaluing of the image of God in another person, love It's about cherishing God's image in all humans. So thus, love is a true reflection of the God who is love. Let us all be continually thinking, how can we be pointing people to this God who has loved them enough to die for them? Let us pray. Father, forgive us for all the ways in which we've done violence to your image, born in others' where we've forgotten that they are precious in your sight. Even those who hate you, bear your image. Help us, O Lord, to love them. Help us, O Lord, to be thinking about the ones that you love, the ones that can't speak up for themselves or defend themselves. Help us to be thinking about those who need your gospel, who need your light, your hope. And help us, O Lord, to may your church, may, may we all be sources of your light, your love, and your truth to a dying world who needs it, that we may truly obey the commandment to not murder by preserving your image in all humanity. We can only, can only do so in your strength, so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.